Good morning and welcome to our Easter Sunday service, the third day, the day when Christ was raised from the dead. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Make a point of greeting those around you with those very words. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I'd like to reflect for a moment from Philippians 2 verse 6. It's talking about Jesus here. It says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not count equality with your Father as a thing to be held onto and grasped, but you emptied yourself. We thank you that you took the form of a servant. Where would we be if you hadn't done that? We thank you that you were born in the likeness of men and that being found in human form, you humbled yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. But Father, more than anything else, Lord Jesus, more than anything else, we thank you that on Easter Sunday, we remember the resurrection the thing, the life-changing, the history-changing event. Nothing will ever be the same as a result of the resurrection. Let's reflect on it. Let's think about it today. And Father God, please inspire us as we come to your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been thinking about William Shakespeare's tragedy, Hamlet. The central character, Hamlet himself, is at a point in the play where he's considering suicide. And I'm sure that you've heard the start of his famous soliloquy. It begins with the words, to be or not to be? That is the question. And on the one hand, Hamlet yearns to escape the trials on earth. Why would we want to put up, he asks us, with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And then he goes on to talk about, and I'm going to quote directly from the play, the kind of things that we have to put up with in life. And maybe you're putting up with some of these things. Who would bear the whips and scorns of time? I love that phrase. He's describing the aging process, the whips and the scorns of time. Sometimes when you wake up in the morning and your back is sore, that's the whip of time. Or when you remember something that you used to be able to do with ease as a teenager or 21-year-old and now you just can't do it. That's time scorning you. Who would want to put up with the aging process? You know, aging is not for sissies. And then he carries on saying, the oppressor's wrong. We know all about that in Zimbabwe. The proud man's contumely. In other words, abusive treatment. The pangs of despised love. Maybe you've had... Um, sadness in love. Maybe someone has betrayed you. The law's delay. He's talking about injustice. There's so much injustice in the world. 
the insolence of office. I think of this one often as I approach a roadblock. The insolence of office, those policemen, my word. And the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with the bare bodkin. In other words, end it all with a dagger, an unsheathed dagger. And why not? Why not indeed? Why would we want to grunt and sweat under a weary life? Another quotation from Shakespeare. He just has such a rich way with words. Imagine just meeting your mate and saying, how are you getting on? And he says to you, Ugh, I'm grunting and sweating under a weary life. Why would we want to do that when we could end it? But, and I quote again, that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose border no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Of course, that's the big question, isn't it? Is it going to be any better after we've died? What's going to happen after we die? That's the biggest question that every human being asks or should be asking. Death is that undiscovered country from whose border no travelers returns. Think of all your, your loved ones that have gone before you. None of them have come back to tell you what it's like after you die. And so we all have to try and answer this question in some way. Some believe that there is no resurrection of the dead. And what sort of philosophy of life do you think would be appropriate to that belief? Well, Paul captures it perfectly by quoting the prophet Isaiah. I bet you would be surprised to find that this is found in the Bible. Isaiah says that this philosophy is best encapsulated by the words, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Folks, if there is no life after death, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's idolize, let's make gods of our stomach and our appetites because there's no meaning in life. What's the point of love just for 50, 60 years and then you die and you never see that person again? What's the point of sacrificing yourself for somebody else? What's the point of fighting for human rights? There's no meaning in life if there is no life after death. Others believe that there is a resurrection of the dead and they seek to influence the outcome of their resurrection in some way. So there are those who follow some form of religion. Religion is basically, in many cases, a code of conduct and behavior and it's a way to earn a good resurrection. That isn't the case in the Christian faith, but all other faiths are like that. If you do X, Y and Z, then you will earn a good resurrection for yourselves. And you know, even those who don't follow an official religion believe that if they live in a certain way, they can look forward to a good life after death. But what if, folks, what if there is a traveler who has returned from the undiscovered country of death? What if that traveler was Jesus Christ? What we're going to do today is we're going to have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There isn't time to, to read it all the way through, but I encourage you to read that whole chapter. But in my sermon today, I'm going to be referring to and summarizing that entire chapter. What do we learn from it? We learn about the certainty of the resurrection, number one. Number two, 
the importance of the resurrection, it is crucial, crucially important. And number three, the effect that the resurrection will have on the way that you live your life here. So number one, the certainty, two, the importance, and three, the resurrection. I mean, I beg your pardon, <laughs> the effect of the resurrection. Number one, the certainty of the resurrection. Paul claims that Jesus is the first and to date only traveler that has returned from the undiscovered country. But is there evidence to back up this claim? Now, in a court of law, you need to have witnesses who bear testimony to the truth. And so Paul draws on five witnesses, five testimonies. First of all, if you look at verse 3 in chapter 15, he looks at the witness of Scripture. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, and then He repeats it again, in accordance with the Scriptures. So when we look at the Bible, there are prophecies that were given hundreds of years before Jesus died and was raised from the dead, predicting that this was going to happen and predicting it in great detail. In fact, they estimate that there are over 600 prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament and the bulk of them relate to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have the witness of Scripture. Then we have the witness of the Twelve. Verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. It was the job of the apostles, of the twelve disciples, to bear testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen folks, these men had spent three years living with Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. So when they came across the resurrected Christ, they knew that it was Jesus and not some sort of imposter because they'd spent three years living with Jesus and they bore testimony to the fact. And most of them didn't, well not most of them, all of them got nothing out of it. John was the only one who died a natural death as an old man on the island of Patmos. Every other disciple died the death of a martyr. And to their dying days, they bore testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They wouldn't have done that if Jesus hadn't been resurrected. They were convinced. But they weren't the only ones. So we have the witness of Scripture. We have the testimony of the Twelve. Then we also have the witness of the Five Hundred. Look at verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. And folks, in those days, women could not be... The, the testimony of a woman was not considered valid in a court of law. So that's why Paul mentions the brothers. But there would have been 500 more extra women who witnessed this. We're talking about over a thousand people. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Folks, this is not something that just got rushed through on the quiet to try and convince people. No, it was, a, it was an open public thing. 500 men, excluding women, saw the resurrected Christ, had interactions with him. And then there's the testimony of Jesus' brother, verse 7. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. You know, 
If you want to find out whether Jesus was raised from the dead, surely you would go and speak to a member of his family. They would be well qualified to say, yes, Jesus died and yes, I saw him raised from the dead. And of course, James also went on to become one of the main leaders in the church. He also died the death of a martyr and the whole time he was claiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then the fifth witness. So we've had scripture, the 12, the 500, the brother of Jesus, James. Then lastly, Paul, as to one untimely born in verse 8, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Folks, <laughs> Paul was the, the biggest enemy of the church. He was the biggest enemy of Christ. He had seen Christ living on earth. He had seen him crucified. He was then going to try and erase the Christian faith from the face of the earth on his way to Damascus to go and persecute Christians, drag them off, kill them, throw them into jail. And then the resurrected Christ revealed himself to Paul and Paul was convinced. And once again, his life completely changed. In fact, the course of history changed because he believed in the resurrection. So we can be certain that one traveler to date has returned from the undiscovered country. Number two, the importance of the resurrection. And Paul, he really goes to great pains to emphasize the crucial importance of Christ's resurrection. And you should go and read the passages in, in, in chapter 15. We'll look at some of them now. You know, the, the resurrection is the throbbing heart of the gospel message. What is the gospel message? It is the good news about an objective, history-changing event that affects everyone and everything. 15 verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What's he saying there? He's saying that the gospel message is the message on which you will stand or fall. It's the message by which you are being saved. It is the lifetime, lifeline to which you must hold in a stormy sea. That's how important it is. Stand or fall, saved or not saved, rescued out of a stormy life or not. But what is this gospel message? Chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see that throbbing heart of the Gospel. It is that Christ was raised on the third day. Why is that so important? Well, Christ's resurrection shows that He was qualified to pay the price for your sin. If I'd been put to death on your behalf, I would have just gone the way of all flesh. I would have been dead. I would have been gone to eternal separation from God, but not Christ. He was the perfect man. He was without sin. So death could not hold onto Him 
and God raised him from the dead, proving that he was an acceptable sacrifice for your sins. Take a look at verse 14. I'm going to read it and then we'll just see what the life without what a life without the resurrection is like. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's just take a few things out of there just to emphasize the importance of the resurrection. Because a life without the resurrection is a life without purpose. Can you see what Paul says there? He says, my preaching is in vain. The, the entire purpose of Paul's life was to preach the gospel to bear testimony to the resurrection. And it's the same for us. Preach the gospel on all occasions when necessary, use words. Those are the, that's a quotation from St. Francis of Assisi. Our purpose is to reflect the glory of God and um, bear testimony to his resurrection so that others can be drawn in. And if we don't have that, then life is without purpose. What about a life without truth. That's what the life um, without the resurrection is like. It's like a life without truth. Paul says we are liars. I wonder whether your life is based on the truth or whether it is based on a lie. We need to make sure that our lives are firmly grounded on the truth of the resurrection and the implications of that truth. I can remember some time ago chatting to a man and praying with him. He, was, he had a terminal illness and I asked him, are you, are you ready to die? And he said to me, Ian, I am ready to die. I'm at peace and I believe that I'm at peace with God. And so then I had to ask him this question in the, in, in, in the nicest and the gentlest of ways. I just asked him, well, on what basis do you think you will be accepted by God? And he said to me, on the basis of my life, I've lived a good life. I've tried my best to be a good human being. I've tried my best not to hurt other people. And you see, if he lived his life on the basis of that, he would be living his life on the basis of a lie. Because it's a lie that we will be put right with God, that we can have peace when we die on the basis of our own record and of our, our own performance. We can't. We need to put our trust on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he died in the place of, of us so that we could have his perfect record, which then makes us acceptable to God. So a life without the resurrection is a life without truth. It is also a life without righteousness. Paul says that without the resurrection, we are still in our sins, still dead in our sins. No right standing with God. It is also a life without hope. Because those who have died in Christ have perished. Folks, 
life is utterly meaningless without a resurrection and the kind of resurrection that we're talking about in the Christian faith. You know, why would I want to get married? Why would I want to fall in love with someone? Why would I want to sacrifice my love for someone else or for some great cause if this was what it's all about? Might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But the hope that we get when we know that our loved ones who are in Christ have gone before us and that we get to spend an eternity with them in a place where there is no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. That is the hope that we have. So, the resurrection is certain. The resurrection is vitally important. Let's have a look lastly at the effect of the resurrection. And first of all, the effect of the resurrection after we die. Here it is. We get a resurrection body. Is it different to our earthly bodies? Yes, it is. Let's look at the imagery that Paul uses in verses 35 to 49. And you can just scan over this um, as I'm talking. He says, Just as an acorn is different to an oak tree, so your resurrection body will be different to your earthly body. Just think of the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. There's a clear link between them, but there is no comparison because the oak tree is glorious. It's magnificent. It's full of life. It's producing fruit. The birds of the air make their nests in it. It shelters people. Huge difference. Also, our resurrection body is going to be so much more glorious than our earthly body. There is a certain amount of glory in our earthly bodies. I mean, the earthly body is an amazing thing, isn't it? It carries the image of God. Ah, oh, but our, our resurrection bodies are going to be so much more glorious. He says, if you were to compare a human with an earthworm, that's the difference between our resurrection body and our earthly body. Or if you were to compare the difference between the sun and the moon. Now, we've just had a full moon, haven't we? I, I, I had a look at it the other night went out it was glorious it was beautiful but you know it was only reflecting the light of the sun that dead barren place nothing compared to the ferocity of the sun the source of life and energy to the whole solar system that's the difference between our earthly bodies and our resurrection bodies why is there this huge difference? Well, Paul elaborates using the metaphor of the seed. And he carries on with that. Just look at the comparisons in verse 42. What is sown, our earthly bodies, when we die, a type of, of, of sowing, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Folks, these bodies of ours are not going to grow old. They're not going to perish. They're not going to groan um, and grunt and sweat under a weary life it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory there's a sense in which we carry a certain amount of dishonor because we we're not living up to the glory of god to to his wonderful perfection the perfections of his character but one day when we are removed from the presence of sin and we're given our resurrection bodies we're going to be reflecting the glory of God because we will be perfectly patient as he is patient we'll be perfectly knowledgeable as he is knowledgeable and so on and so forth and then 
It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And then Paul goes on to explain how our um, earthly bodies bear the image of the man of dust, which is Adam. But our resurrection bodies will bear the image of the man of heaven, who is Jesus. Verse 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Just think for this, think of this for a moment. There is one resurrected human in heaven at the moment. And one day we're going to have a resurrection body like his. What does the Bible tell us about Christ's resurrection body? Well, he was different, but he could still be recognized. It took time for Mary to recognize who he was. It was only when he started speaking to her that, that she knew. The same with the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It was only when he broke bread that it suddenly clicked. Oh, my word, this is Christ. He was still a person because he was able to have personal interactions with people. And this is good news because it means we'll be able to have personal interactions with other resurrected people one day. Maybe our grandparents or our parents or our loved ones, someone that we've lost. He was still a person. He still had the scars of the crucifixion, once again, just to show that, that, that somehow he had a body. And he wasn't a ghost because he could be touched. Um, the Apostle John says that he was, in, in, in the start of his first um, epistle, he says, that which we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands, felt with our hands. He wasn't a ghost. And we also know that he came and joined the disciples. He came through the wall, which would make you think that he was a ghost. But then he sat down and he shared a meal with them. He ate fish. And then after that, he went through the wall again. I mean, it just blows the mind. This resurrection body is going to be so incredible. And I just love the fact that when Jesus is talking about the resurrection and about when we get to heaven, get to the kingdom of God, he talks about the fact that we're going to celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb. And can you imagine what that wedding feast is going to be like? We'll be able to eat food because Jesus was able to eat a fish. We'll be able to relate to other people, to spend time with them, to connect with them. I think it's going to be wonderful. So that's the effect of the resurrection after we die. But what about the effect of the resurrection, resurrection before we die? Have a look at verse 58. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Folks, because there is a resurrection, we know that everything that we do for the Lord is not going to be in vain because one day we will be rewarded for it when we get to heaven. And this means that we can be steadfast, we can be immovable in the vicissitudes of life. Maybe you're suffering from cancer at the moment or maybe you're missing a loved one. Whatever it might be, encourage yourself with the doctrine of the resurrection. Take your stand on it. Do not, 
be moved and then abound, overflow in the work of the Lord. This is what God has called us to. You know, we can leave everything on the field, everything on the playing field, because we know that one day we will have a resurrection and nothing can rob that from us. It's a bit like a person who's, who's maybe in their, in their 40s or 50s, um, living life, and they know that at the age of 75, they're going to come into a huge inheritance. So for all of those years running up to it, they can live expansively. Whatever they earn, they can give away because they know that their um, retirement is assured. And in, in many ways, it's a bit like that for us. We know that our retirement in heaven is assured. And so we can just leave everything on the field. We can afford to be generous people. We can afford to be kind people. We can be, afford to be loving people. But if there's no resurrection, go and eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. Now, before we tie this all up, I would just like to make a concluding observation. In this passage, Paul has been talking about the resurrection of Christians. But what about those who have not received and believed the gospel message? Namely, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Is there a resurrection for them? Because if there isn't and they're just annihilated, well, that would change the way they lived on earth, isn't it? So when Paul was standing before Felix, the Roman governor, this is what he said. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, he was referring to the Jewish people, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. What was the hope? That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Look at what Jesus said in John 5. And God has given me authority to execute judgment because I am the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment and eternal separation from God. I'd like to read lastly from Revelations. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, beg your pardon, a great white throne, <laughs> and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So this is a resurrection of everybody. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And that's the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire, folks, is a, is a metaphor or a symbol of what it will be like to be resurrected and yet to spend an eternity separated from the presence of God. It'll be the most awful thing. It'll be like being in a lake of fire. So folks, I would encourage you to go and encourage yourself or perhaps to allow yourself to be challenged by having a look at the certainty of the resurrection all of the evidence that Paul has provided. And you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the evidence that's provided in the Bible and also from history itself. There's more than enough evidence to show that it happened. And then reflect on the importance of the resurrection and the effect that it's going to have, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And then spend some time praising, exalting, thanking God, reviewing your life, asking yourself whether I'm abounding in the work of the Lord. Am I leaving some skin on the field because I know that it's all going to turn out all right in the end? The best is yet to be. And if you realize that you have been living your life on a lie, that there isn't a resurrection or that maybe the resurrection comes through your own efforts and your own work, then you need to go back and reevaluate that. You need to go back and ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you for all the times that you've rebelled against God, all the times that you've lived your life without any reference to Him, ignoring Him completely. And if you do that and ask for forgiveness, then just as Christ was raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead. Not raised to judgment, but raised to life and eternity with God and with those that you love and those who have been serving the Lord in their lifetime. Shall we pray? Father God, just in closing, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made a way for us to spend an eternity with the Father and with those that we love in resurrected bodies, the like of which we cannot imagine. We exalt you for these things, Lord Jesus. We exalt you for these things, Father God. And Father, then also for those who, who have been convicted by this evidence that there is a resurrection and that the way to get a resurrection to life, real life, eternal life, is through faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would just ask you to pray along quietly in your, in your heart with me now. Father God, I recognize that, that I have sinned and that I fall short of what you want me to be. And I feel ashamed of the sins that I've committed. And I recognize that all of those sins come from a place of not wanting to submit to you of not wanting to listen to you, of wanting to ignore you and wanting to do your own, my own thing. I pray that you would forgive me for this. I want to overflow with good work for you once you have restored me to fullness of life, once you have restored me to a right relationship with you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks so much for signing in. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Cheers for now.